I've had you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with that. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> Alright. Hello and welcome to episode. 400 of the Stupid Cancer Show. We are the voice of young adult cancer. Coming to you from downtown Manhattan. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. I'm your co-producer, Mallory Rivera. I'd like to welcome all of our first-time and returning listeners. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. Sucks, huh? We change the world one chemo infusion at a time. On this episode, our 400th episode... The story of us. When Trisha and Greg Russo are researching their options on becoming parents after Trisha's breast cancer diagnosis, they were discouraged not to find any helpful video resources online. So they picked up a camera, assembled a team, and started filming the story of us. Trisha and Greg join us along with producer-director Craig to discuss the film project and Trisha and Greg's journey to becoming parents through surrogacy. Survivor Spotlight on returning champion young adult ovarian cancer survivor Jennifer Rackman. 400 episodes. That's a lot of episodes. May 28, 2007 with humble beginnings in my second bedroom pre-children in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn with a Bluetooth microphone and a tiny little laptop. It was, I think I had one listener and it was my dad. How far Makes... you've come. <laughs> All I can think about is Drake. Started at the bottom, now we here. That's Thank appropriate. You. Appropriate yeah. Canadian quote of the evening. <laughs> Canadian quote of the evening. I love it. Amazing. 400. I remember when we celebrated 250 a couple of years ago, uh, Lisa was here. Lisa Bernhard, one of my uh, past co-hosts. And we just were like mind-boggled that there could... This was even before podcasts were like the mainstream thing that they are today that we had pulled off 250 shows and now we're at 400 it's amazing i'm doing a small round of applause on the radio for all of us <laughs> that's that's sean shapiro everyone hello sean hi no one clapped with me <laughs> it's the green sweater that no one can see on the radio oh you're very mr rogers is today i like it thank you yeah well you be my are neighbor you, are you <laughs> Are you finished writing thank you cards from Toast yet? No. <laughs> we owe a lot of thank yous for raising 95000 Yeah. For those listening, we raised $95,000 two weeks ago at our annual fundraiser. A mm -hmm. really big deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And hello, Mallory. Hello, Laurel. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing this fine evening? What word are you going to use tonight, Mal? Dandy. Ducky. Fabulous. Delightful. Delightful. Delicious. Delirious. De lovely. Delirious. Delirious. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. De lovely. De lovely. Good old tribute to Jerome Kern. Yeah. Is that Kern? No, it's isn't it Cole Porter? Cole Porter, it's you're Cole, right. It's, yes, it's good a Cole catch. Porter. It is Cole Porter. Anyway. So uh I have some funny news, interesting news. The Washington Post 
contacted me that they want to do some kind of health forum at WashPo headquarters in Washington, D.C., and they've asked me to be on a panel, Yay, which is Wash incredibly po. exciting. And so I've been working exciting. with there's a, a, a writer called uh, her name is uh, Laura, Lori McGinley, I think, and Allison. Um, I'm so bad with names. Dryden or Raiden. I'm, I apologize if you're listening to the show, but the gist is that the Washington Post wants to get into young adult cancer and health and rights and possibly fertility. And it's exciting. Um, and I got to book a two one two one way airfare tickets from JFK to San San Diego for a conference, and then from San Diego to Washington. And I can't even think about driving my car anywhere and taking a cell back. And the most convoluted business travel logistics ever. But I think it'll be worth it to never been there. Washington Post headquarters. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, super exciting. Very cool. So thanks in advance. To the Washington Post for when believing is that? Us. It's uh, December eighth. December eighth. So just around the corner. Around the corner, another month or so, and we have uh, our big conference coming up this Saturday, October twenty ninth. away. OMG West in Irvine, uh, at UC Irvine in Orange, California. Yes. So what's it like, Laurel? For you gearing up for another uh, major conference? This one you're not coming to, but you are seeing social action and social engagement. Yes, I'm very excited. I, I'm i very excited. I think that in the lead up to these events where the community does come together, just kind of that community is so felt online. Everybody's tweeting about it. Everybody's kind of shares different pictures of what their, you know, past experiences were. And it's exciting to kind of be a part of that. It's exciting to go through that and to share that and to talk to the community and for the community to be talking back to us and to be tweeting at us at Stupid Cancer and to be sharing their posts and stories on Instagram and on Facebook. It's exciting. And I'm so excited um, to kind of see how everything goes on this Saturday. I'm excited to have Mallory there live tweeting the event. Oh, boy. My first live tweeting experience. It's going to be great. That's I know it's going to be the great. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> not the Tonys. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. And we have another community takeover with Stephen, a uh, steering committee member. Nice. And um, I'm just really excited. I just think that this community has so many stories to tell. And I love being a part of the telling of those stories. And I'm just so excited to see it happen again. Uh, this Saturday in Orange, California, at the UC Irvine for and OMG West. Hashtag OMG West. Capital O, capital M, capital G, capital W. Lowercase ice. <laughs> I love that. It's like you guys are listening every time I say that every morning in yes. the office. Well done. Well done. <laughs> and speaking of stories, we had a wonderfully, uh, well, it was kind of a, a very angry one of our, I would have called them douchebag alert, how we had a young adult survivor share the story that she was fired. When they, found out, when they found out she had cancer, and technically, from an HR perspective, you can't prove that you were let go because of a disease, but it was fairly self-evident, and that post got lots of anger Facebook emojis, rightfully so, ever. and tons of comments. What was the gist? Were there lots of people that said, me too, or how dare they, or... What, what, do you, what did you see? What was the takeaway? I mean, it was a combination. It was a lot of how dare they, but then it was a lot of which I find so sad. And it was just a lot of people sharing their stories saying this shouldn't be normal, but here's my story. And then people liking that and saying, yeah, it really shouldn't be normal. That shouldn't be, this should not be just another part of having cancer. Um, and then them sharing their story of how they lost their job as a result of either the cancer, either being the cancer diagnosis or being in treatment, um, missing work because they had to go through treatment, uh, whatever it may be, but because of cancer, other people losing their jobs and just everybody sharing their story about that and being angry about it, but then having their own story to share, you know, saying like, I'm so, can I say pissed? Yeah. Can I say that? I'm so pissed. Didn't I just say douchebag alert before? You could say whatever yeah, you want. Yeah, he did. Fair enough. Yeah, them saying, I'm so pissed that this happened for you, but here's my story, which I am, I'm incredulous to that. But Well, it goes back to how our community gives you permission to be pissed, that this Absolutely. is not okay, but we're part of that anger together, and what can we do to make it better for the next us? 
And this is a, a story that is so emblematic of why we focus on millennials and Gen X cancer that this doesn't traditionally happen when you're over the age of 55. And I think so interesting, too, because I think that career planning is so much a part of being in your 20s and 30s. And and this woman, she was talking about how she was so excited to have this position that, you know, so much of what she did previous to this led her to this point. And I think that, you know, in your 20s and 30s, you're working so hard to get to a point in your career where you have that dream job and to just be getting there just grasping that or on the cusp of that dream to have that taken away because you have cancer and to have so many people have that same story. Yes. And it's, but here's the thing, like have the stories always been there and we've just not known because we've never captured them or are these actually happening more and more often now than ever before? And we do have a mechanism to hear them all the time. That was a loaded question with no answer, but more rhetorical than anything else. Anyway, like just like I'm so proud of our community and supporting Stupid Cancer and 400 episodes of this podcast that you're listening to now. So thank you to our listeners, our supporters and our community for your willingness and your courage to be angry with us. Absolutely. Well done. Here, here. So let's kick off the show with our Survivor Spotlight. In our spotlight tonight, Jennifer Rackman. Outreach coordinator at Circle Surrogacy. She's a licensed clinical social worker, a young adult cancer survivor, and a parent through surrogacy. And a returning champion to the Stupid Cancer Show. Please welcome Jen Rackman. Hello, Jen. Hi there. Welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show. Happy to be back. It's been a while since we've had you, but your story is oh so relevant, especially since we were just discussing at the top of the show another story that we posted on social about why it's so different to be young with cancer. And it was around someone who lost their job because they had cancer and they were in their 20s. And we're talking about what makes us not better or worse than other age groups. It's just why. Why are we different? And you are so emblematic of that story. I'd love you to take us back to the beginning as to how you found yourself mired into the club no one wanted to join. Mm the cancer club. Um, So I was 26 years old at the time and went to my routine gynecological exam. And um, during my exam, my doctor pressed on something and I winced. And I always, in hindsight, I always look back like, what if I hadn't winced? Would she have said something? Um, You always like second guess how things actually came to be. Um, In any case, I had a great doctor and she discovered that I had some growths on some cysts on my ovaries and I had some misdiagnoses along the way. They thought it was endometriosis. They're like, no, it's not, you know, something serious. It's probably benign. Um, And it wasn't until they actually went in after a series of, you know, hormone replacement and control to see if that would get things under control. Do they realize that it wasn't changing and things were growing? So let's go in there and see what's what's happening. So um, I had a surgical procedure that diagnosed me at that time with ovarian cancer. Um, It was stage three. And thankfully, I had a great team of doctors and they um, removed at that initially a one ovary because they were hopeful to save a big push for me was I wanted to preserve my fertility. I was, um, dating my, my now husband, but at the time we were dating and we had just moved in together and I, we wanted to have a family at some point. We wanted to have options. So I really advocated for as much as I could to try to leave myself with as many options as possible. But unfortunately both ovaries did need to come out. Um, they recommended a full a full hysterectomy. That's pretty uh, common for ovarian cancer. However, I um, advocated to keep my uterus because I couldn't understand what did my uterus have to do with my ovaries. Um, however, when the time came that my then boyfriend and I got married and were pursuing having a family and looking at our options, no one could tell me that it was safe to carry and no one could tell me that it wasn't. Um, so we really, we went back and forth about, you know, what are our options here? Do we go forward and use that uterus and put my stable body, you know, in a, in a different position that, you know, who knows what that could or couldn't lead to? Or do we explore other avenues like surrogacy and egg donation or adoption? 
Um, so it took us many years of grieving and, and, and sadness and anger and frustration to get to the point where we felt that we wanted to make a plan and we decided to pursue um, surrogacy and egg donation as the route that, that work, would work best for us. Um, so how old, 35, so it was 26 at diagnosis and around 34, 35 years old, um, we finally felt ready to move into family building. And we signed on with Circle Surrogacy and used their services to have our boy, and uh, who's now four and a half, which is unbelievable. Um, and my, what, what was one of the most obviously life-altering events um, at that point really turned into not only a, a personal change, but also um, a career change in the sense that I, I began chatting with Circle about joining them. And one of my big pushes was about advocating in the cancer community about if survivors out there needed these services um, and needed the support to have families. And I wanted to be able to be there to, to help that. Um, so I joined the team at Circle about almost four years ago. And um, I, I'm very fortunate that I've turned into you know my life path where it's led me into my job. Um, so I feel very fortunate and very blessed. And I get to talk to a lot of survivors. Any survivor that comes into our program kind of automatically gets pointed my way in some capacity where um, you know we share stories and, and, and I can give them information about how this all works. Um, so that's my story. So that's a lot to unpack. I heard a lot of things there worth diving into, the least of which is how you came to the table, you came to the conversation prepared and aware about reproduction and, and family planning. Do you find that a lot of women you've encountered in your advocacy time uh, have that self-preservational instinct or do they really depend on the doctor to bring it up? I think that there's still a lot of dependence on the doctor to initiate that conversation, but I feel like it's shifting more and more do I hear people advocating for themselves. Um, and unfortunately, you know, whenever I talk to survivors, I ask them that question because I'm curious about, you know, how did you get here? Because often when they get to me at Circle, they have either undergone preservation or they haven't. And I'm always curious to know how that happened. And, and, you know, I'm proud of the ones that did take that step. Um, maybe for me, because it was in my ovaries, I knew that, well, I clearly are taking them out. So for me, it's, you know, I'm losing the ability to have a genetic child right off the bat. So maybe it was a bit more of a forced conversation because right. then it made me really think, you know, this is cut and dry. It wasn't, would my treatment affect it or wouldn't it, or you know, they, they were taking them out. So, so now what? No, I understand that. And so let me ask you another question then. We're, we're here, you know, 10 years later in that sense. Is there a, uh, a new procedure? Are there new conversations around if you have ovarian cancer? Can they do anything before the ovarectomy to harvest tissue or collect follicles? Is, is there anything new now that, that would be have been better for the next you in the event that you did have to have the full hysterectomy. I do think that there are better, there's better technology with the debulking of the ovary when there is cancer detected in it. Where I have actually had some ovarian survivors come to me saying that they, even with cancer in their ovary, had been able to do undergo a retrieval. I think that doctors are feeling a bit more comfortable with the idea of pausing for the fertility preservation. It seems like then it was like, let's just get to treatment. We want to get you in chemo. We want to get you going as soon as possible. And there was a little hesitation with taking that sidestep. But the more I'm hearing is that the option of pausing before I jump into treatment, and of course it depends on the severity of the case, but I'm hearing more and more that people are, at the very least having that conversation as to whether or not they can stop or not to do that, that harvesting. 
Right. And you have been active in our community for many, many years. You've come to our events. You've spoken at our events. You now represent Circle Surrogacy at our conferences and our many workshops and educational programs out there. What do you see as the biggest shift in awareness around the options for those who are either questioning or unable to have natural born children after cancer? I feel like there's a shift where there's more people are becoming more open in how they talk about these options. I think that years ago there was such a stigma around donor conceived children around surrogacy, um, even around, you know, adoption with the idea of, you know, everyone wanted to keep things hush hush. And I think there's this trend in openness and more people. And I think that's, I don't know if that's necessarily being led by the cancer community as well, as well as the infertile community and the gay community of just the idea that we need these other options. So why would, shouldn't I be talking about them? So I think there's more of a push for people to be open and, and less, um, there's less shame and less stigma around it because there's so much more option to be open and for everyone to be accepting of there's just other ways to become a family and less of the focus on the kind of traditional family structure. Right. And as the father of twins conceived through in vitro fertilization, I'm right there on your page. What are they? Where do they belong in the narrative of, of acceptance and tolerance of, of the new family? And, you know, young adult cancer, millennial cancer, Gen X cancer, we're having children in a very non-traditional way, perhaps because we've gone through this medical experience. And I, I really think your answer is, is, is incredible that there's more of a tolerance and an appreciation that this is who we are as a community. I, I can't help but, but go back to the fact that you're now on the flip side of the service that helped give you a family, and that must be so rewarding. It's great. I really, you know, I, yeah, I became a social worker because I wanted to help people. And that was kind of just always in my nature, but I guess I never really, I always thought, you know, I, my first, my first job was with kids and adolescents and families. And I, I never, I mean, I mean, who would have ever foreseen that this is the path that, um, where I would be professionally, but I feel really fortunate. And, you know, what I, my, the best part about it for me is, is hearing their stories. I mean, I, I just, even this past weekend, sat down with two different cancer survivors and just my mind is always blown at, I mean, knock on wood, I've had a relatively easy go in terms of, you know, compared to some of these uh, intense, long, difficult struggles that people have with cancer. And um, I'm just, I'm in awe of them sitting across from me and saying, you know, I, I'm here. I want to become a parent. How do I do this? Tell me how this works. It's great. So let's talk about the challenges of these choices now. You're clearly not conceiving a child naturally. The process is costly. It's rigorous. It's intense. It's emotionally draining. It's laborious. How do you navigate that and talk to us about how companies like Circle try to make it a little easier for you to get to where you'd like to be? Oh, you know, so Circle, one of the things that I really do adore about my agency is that they were constantly communicating and assessing about how do we make this process easier, both financially and emotionally, and looking at what services can we provide the people coming in to, to support them. So one of the things on a financial note, uh, there are loan options that were not available actually when I joined the program, um, there where we're able to help um, our what we call intended parents secure um, non-secured loans through a medical loan company and it's based on credit score. It's not based on equity. Um, if you have good credit, you can qualify. And it's given more people options to pay if they don't have all this money up front because who really does? And especially if you're a survivor who might have, you know, medical bills you're paying off and then this on top of it. But it has um, opened some doors for people that need that, that help. Um, on an emotional level, we do a lot of different things at Circle. Um, and I, and I, Part of my role um, is you know, on the emotional side of things to talk about, you know, where has the survivor been, you know, where, um, how are they coping, what are they doing now, how do they feel going into this journey, and what will it be like for them considering everything they're bringing with them into this picture. Um, 
we do all variety of types of support in the program. Um, I'm actually doing presently some groups through Skype with women all over the world, not even just in the country, in the world, who are pursuing surrogacy due to some sort of medical reason. So survivors fall on, obviously fall under that umbrella. So I have a bunch of survivors in those groups. And to bring intended mothers together who have been through so much medically and now are pursuing parenthood in this way, it's such a gift to be able to, to bring them all together. So as an example of ways that Circle is always looking to provide levels of support for people in the process. It's amazing that you're creating the community that you wished you had when you were first going through this process and you're bringing all of that narrative and that story and, and even our, our main segment is, is, uh, has a relationship with what you guys are doing now and they're making a documentary film about this community effort giving even more rise to the young adult cancer world and our stories. So uh, we're going to pause for a second for some news and we'll have you back as we welcome our main segment here, uh, Tricia, Greg, and Craig, and we can all talk about the documentary film and what it is really saying to the world about the choices we make when things happen to us that we didn't ask for. Great. All right, so sit tight. Thanks, Jen. Okay, thanks. All right, Mel, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Stupid Cancer does a whole lot of awesome things. And here's what's happening now. The OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults started in 2008. In eight years, 14 summits have brought together more than 6,000 people. On October 29th, join the Young Adult Cancer Movement in Orange, California. OMG West is all about community. Learn more at omgsummit.org. Join us for a different kind of social mixer. No pressure, no judgments, no stigma. Best of all, no sitting around in a circle sharing your feelings. Find a meetup in your area at events.stupidcancer.org or host your own. Just go to stupidcancer.org slash meetup. And we have meetups happening in Louisville, Kentucky and Boston, Massachusetts. Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky. That's awesome. Go Kentucky. We want to see how you get busy living. Follow Stupid Cancer on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to tag us at Stupid Cancer. Join the movement. Show how you get busy living in your Stupid Cancer gear. Shop at stupidcancerstore.org. We've been doing the show for 10 years and want to hear more from you, our listeners. Tell us what you'd like to hear. Fill out our survey at stupidcancer.org slash podcast survey and get 15% off in the Stupid Cancer Store. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Our main segment here, Trish Russo is a metastatic breast cancer survivor currently filming a documentary about she and her husband's journey to build a family after a cancer diagnosis. With us today is her husband, Greg, and her co-producer and co-director, Craig Shapiro, here to talk about the documentary film, The Story of Us. Here we go. Trish Russo. Greg Russo. Craig Shapiro. Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show. Thank you. Hi, thanks. And uh, Jen Rackman from our prior segment is on the air, too. This is a natural extension of our discussion with her about the story of young adult cancer, how we're different, what makes us unique, and why our stories matter, and how better uh, represented in the body than the fertility conversation. Absolutely. And you know what's funny, Jen? I I actually, when I saw your name pop up, um, I had actually attended the Circle Surrogacy webinar that you did probably two years ago or something. Um, did you really? That's, that's I amazing. did. Yeah. So you were one of my first entry points into learning about surrogacy as well. I love that. I'm so glad. So we really did get the band back saw, together. Yeah. Yeah. And when I saw your name pop up, I said, oh, I did see that video. I'm like, that's amazing. <laughs> I love it. So, Trish, let's get started with your story. We always ask people to begin with what life was like before the shit hit the fan. And, uh, you know, this is a really important narrative to tell. 
Yeah. So before the shit hit the fan, uh, my, my husband, Greg, and I were living in Los Angeles and I was working in the development division at Walt Disney Motion Pictures, just trucking along, reading scripts, uh, moving up the, the proverbial ladder to be an executive in the film business. And then we or I discovered a lump in my breast and I went to see my GP who thought it was just a cyst from birth control. Uh, you know, he said to track any changes, but basically asked, how old am I? And is there an any family history of breast cancer? And since there's no cancer in my family and I was 30 years old at the time, um, they, they kind of sent me on my merry way. And in the meantime, I had gotten a second opinion at my gynecologist who did the same exact uh, kind of routine and said the same thing. And then the third time I went in, which was about six months after the first time, it was that much bigger and I started to feel a pain under my armpit. And so they rushed me to get a mammogram, you know, the, the ultrasound and the biopsy. And in about three days, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Fun in a bun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and it didn't and it, end there. It, it went on and on. It went on and on. We, we went right into treatment. We did um, kind of consult a fertility specialist before starting the treatment because the treatment would be rather aggressive. It started with chemotherapy. It was going to start with chemotherapy and a single mastectomy and radiation. Um, but we did take a, a, a session to sit down with a fertility specialist who who basically told us that we didn't really have time to get off birth control and try to preserve any eggs. And so we went right into treatment, keeping our fingers crossed that after a year or two of tamoxifen that I would be able to get off the medication and then we would be able to ha have a family. But of course, uh, the fun continued from there because about a year after treatment is when it had spread or metastasized to my brain. Um, brains so, are overrated. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. Right. You don't need that brain. Yeah. Um, but had brain surgery, followed by partial brain radiation, uh, and then sat tight for another year, um, and just got scanned regularly. And fingers crossed, was 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 good for for a whole year until I was actually going to start doing IVF myself. And right before um, that, I was going to start that process, I went in for one of my uh, typical brain scans, and it turned out not to be very typical. And they said there was another recurrence, and I had gamma knife surgery. So really high-dose radiation uh, in one session, but that tabled our plans to try IVF myself. Where were you initially diagnosed before NYU? I was, I was, we were living in Los Angeles. So my first diagnosis, I got treatment at the Disney Family Cancer Center. So literally my cancer center was right across the street from my office. So I would go to work and just walk across the street to get treatment and then walk right back across the street to keep working. I really tried to put my head down and try to maintain as much normalcy as possible in my life at that time. So the happiest place on earth had a oxymoron connotation to it. Absolutely, except that, I mean, I was very, very lucky. I know I've heard from all, you know, different cancer survivors that have different work experiences. And, I mean, Disney was a very magical place to go through something like that. It was very much a family-oriented environment. My coworkers were very supportive of me. I got promoted within that year of treatment, actually, um, and, but at the end of the year, you know, just a lot had changed in my life because of the treatment and I decided to leave, uh, that, that world. So I had quit my job and I actually moved to New York and had a bi-coastal life for about a year and a half. Um, and then ultimately moved back to Los Angeles, uh, full time. So I was talking with Jen, and we always ask this of our uh, of our guests who've gone through the fertility conversation about who brings that conversation to the table, and mm -hmm. are more and more women than I mean, Jen was ten years ago, and you were meant you know, uh, two thousand and uh, well, this was recently actually after Jen, 
Mm-hmm. Where is that conversation happening? Why is it happening? Where is it not happening? And who's responsible for it happening? And then the emotional toll and the navigational toll it takes. And mm-hmm. that, to me, speaks volumes as to what you are trying to put into a film project, correct? Absolutely, yeah. It's, a, it's quite a big subject to put into a film and really nuanced, not necessarily always spoken, right? A lot of interior, internal um, feelings that come up. I, It's kind of a blur. Like 2011, when I was first diagnosed, which is almost five years ago, um, it's kind of a blur who brought the subject up first. I, I'm sure, I think that I asked, or my mother was in the room with me as well, and she you know, had wanted to be a grandma for a long time. So she was definitely in on that conversation from the beginning as well. My oncologist was very supportive of having the conversation, um, but they very much were kind of pushing that, especially since I had estrogen positive um, breast cancer, to not do the preservation before uh, going about treatment and that they felt fairly confident that after being on medication for they wanted five years, of course. I started talking to women who were getting off their medication around year two and having a family. So I felt like I could be one of them. And, um, and of course, now there's studies and research that shows that they want you to be on tamoxifen for about 10 years um, before uh, of, of treatments, which for me at the age of 30 being diagnosed, that pretty much takes up this my my window of uh, reproductive capability. So especially once you have chemo, because that, as we know, it can impact your fertility and your eggs. Um, so my husband and I never really had a window of time where we tried to have a child ourselves because I was always on the medication and could not try to have a child ourselves. My, ourselves. So this really surrogacy, uh, once, especially once I metastasized, became the only option for us. And then it was whether or not it was going to be my eggs or an egg donor's eggs. But who, it's interesting because actually who linked me up with you, Matthew, was Catherine Benedict, who is a researcher who's studying cancer and infertility and how women perceive, um, you know, being told about their fertility options and you know, you do hear a lot of women reporting that they didn't really know the impact that their treatment would have on their fertility. And if only they had that choice or could have had that conversation. Um, But it's interesting to kind of, I don't know how to gauge, is it the reality that they're not told? Or is it also such a blur when you're first diagnosed, and there's so many other things to consider, like, what am I going to do to try to keep myself alive? Um, that, you know, it can, it's easy to kind of forget that part of the conversation. Right. And Dr. Benedict's study talked about that 87% of women reported not being informed, but what Mm -hmm. does informed really mean? I want to go to Greg because too often the caregiver doesn't get uh, enough credit for credits due. Dude, bravo, A, for (laughs) sticking with it, but B, being such a partner and making sure that this is all coming together. I, I, we, I'm going to just say, you know, the, 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 the spouse, it's hard to have the caregiver in the spotlight, but it's so important that you're recognized as a real team player. And I was hoping you would just briefly share before I want to get Craig on because we want to talk about the project. What was it like for you as a spouse to watch your wife go through this and how did you manage to get by and, and make it work for both right. of you? Yeah, no, it's uh, I mean, it's an, it's an absolutely you know, devastating thing to go through. I think, uh, I always thought of it as a, a diagnosis to a patient, you know, as, as a diagnosis to the partner as well. Uh, you go through, while you're not physically there receiving the treatment, you're there through all the emotional ups and downs and through all that turmoil and having to make those incredibly difficult decisions. So, yeah, you know, we were a young couple and you know, 30 years old and things were looking good and all friends around us were all having, starting to have children and all of a sudden, you know, that got, that got you know, put aside, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, it was uh, it was a devastating thing to have to go through. I think a lot of times when you're dealing with a cancer diagnosis and the initial treatment, you don't think about fertility and you don't think about uh, what the impact will be. So uh, it almost came as an aftershock to, you know, to the initial earthquake, which is not only are you going to have to battle this uh, unforgiving, horrible disease, but 
you know, you're not going to be able to have children in, in a traditional way, or you're going to have to explore other options that are going to, it's going to be, uh, that are going to be difficult. And, uh, it's, it was really tough. So to put it mildly, so, you know, I, we, I don't know, you know, I, I, you go back to the, the vows you take when you marry someone and for, for sickness and sickness and in health and, you love that person and you stand by them no matter what. And if we were going to have a children, uh, have children, uh, I was going to figure out and explore whatever avenue we could to, uh, to reach that goal. Um, yeah. And, and Craig, you have a very impressive resume to your, to your, uh, to your LinkedIn profile. If I may be so blunt, you, you've done, you produce stuff for ESPN, VH1, HBO, and you've taken on this incredible challenge and opportunity here. Talk about how you came to, the, the relationship with Trish and Greg and what this project means to you. Well, no, you know, it's funny um, when, when this came about uh, being on your show, we saw the address and, you know, I live basically, I lived just two blocks from you or three blocks from your office. Um, so to some degree, this whole project was sort of born in Tribeca because Trish and I, we're in the same office when she finished college and I had just started, you know, a, a very rudimentary production company. Um, and I shared office space with her boss who was a filmmaker. So we all were right downtown New York. Um, Trish went on to grad school, married Greg and moved to LA and we were just all in touch. So, you know, when she was diagnosed with cancer, um, you know, she sort of went off the grid and we would see these Facebook posts and, and, and things. And, you know, um, it was like all terribly troubling. I mean, to be honest. And I remember actually riding my bicycle to the, to the hospital after her brain surgery. Um, you know, I'd like had to call like three or four different people to find out where she was. It was, there was very, it was very intense. Um, and, you know, like she said, a year after brain surgery, she contacted me and said, hey, you know, I'm trying to, you know, start a family and I can't quite do it the traditional way. And I, I don't know, but I think we should be filming this. And I just was like, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. Um, and that was three years ago. I've lived now in four different apartments, you know, it's like, it's really been, it's really been, uh, it's been, an, it's been interesting. That's just to say the least. So the story of us really includes you. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way. Um, but really it's been, you know, we've, we've filmed in, I mean, let's see, like one, two, three, we, I think we've probably filmed in like maybe six different States. Um, it's been a real, really like all hands on deck kind of a project. A lot of our closer, you know, friends and, you know, sort of colleagues have, have worked in some capacity on the project. And, um, you know, now we're kind of closing in on the, on the grand finale. Um, it's just sort of amazing. Uh, and, you know, I've really, have not talked about this out loud very often um, because I think like when you're in the middle of the project, you just sort of, I don't know, maybe internalize it a little, but it's been, it's been, uh, it's been incredible. You know, one, one element that I want to bring up because I have personal friends I've known for 30 years and they just went through regular adoption and they're in perfect health, but to see what they had to go through to prove that they are who they are and they're valid human beings and they're whatnot was, was tragic for them. And I, I, I'm sure the conversation came out, well, why didn't you just adopt? And adoption brings with it a whole other level of microscopic viewing on who you really are as a human. And you, you can't really be sick and adopt. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, that's what we've uh, been told at least um, a nurse navigator at Sloan Kettering. I was kind of going through, I wouldn't say depression, but I was very upset, obviously, by not being able to have a family. I felt like I was stuck in a holding pattern of scans every three months. And when was I going to actually live my life? 
Um, how was I going to get my life back on track after all of this? And we talked through uh, me doing, you know, how doing an egg retrieval and the risks of that versus getting an egg donor, getting a surrogate. And we also discussed adoption and, you know, her bottom line to me was, especially with the stage four metastatic diagnosis, that it was going to be very difficult for us to be able to adopt, that they were probably going to look for us to be at least a certain number of years out from the diagnosis. And they would have preferred, of course, that we had been NED for a certain period of time which I never have quite gotten to because I have scar tissue in my brain that they are sometimes not sure if it's a tumor or if it's scar tissue, but it's nothing that they have to treat right now. So adoption was going to be, was, was pretty much off the table for us. Um, and so it, it almost because it was off the table, it was easier to say, okay, now we have to just bolster ourselves and go on this journey to find an egg donor and a surrogate. Uh, Jen Rackman from Circle Surrogacy. How does the surrogacy model work when you're evaluating? I would hate—I hate to say it so callously—the health viability of the, the the surrogate parents of the intended parents. The intended parents. I'm sorry, the language. Yes, the intended parents. No, that's okay. Um, so it's interesting. Every agency, and much like adoption, every agency has their own kind of list of ideas or criteria of expectations in terms of what in their mind makes someone suitable, you know, or healthy enough to become, uh, to enter the program, become a parent this way. Um, Circle, what we've done, and I appreciate that, you know, when I came on board, we had a lot more conversation about cancer survivors. And, you know, what our perspective is, we take every case on a case-by-case basis because there's so many variables to assess in terms of someone's health status. And even though we will say we would prefer you to be out of treatment and we would prefer you to be in a place emotionally where you feel ready to move forward, um, the realities are, I mean, I just met a cancer survivor who came into our program recently. Her cancer is chronic and she'll always have active tumors that she's just working to, you know, keep at bay and, uh, and, um, and she's surviving and thriving for 12 years in this capacity. So um, what we generally do in that instance is we really talk about and really aim at the support network, whether it's a spouse or a family or friends um, to talk about the realities of like, well, what if your health status were to change? Let's have that conversation because we want to make sure, and this is anyone coming into the program, not just cancer survivors, anyone with any kind of health history. Um, in addition to, I mean, someone could just walk down the street and get hit by a bus. So we always have the conversation of um, everyone has to have a will in place in the process. I mean, this is the, the reality we have to make sure that um, we've covered everything in terms of protecting your future, the future child um, and to make sure you've, everyone's kind of thought it through about what if things were to become um, different than they're presenting now. So we don't really have a cut, like a real concrete standard because every case is really so specific. And so we really try to listen to where the survivor is now. Um, and again, really kind of zoning in on how does everyone else in this equation, you know, feel about the situation. So, a question to Trish and Greg. Uh, you, you actually, and to Craig, you've all worked in the Hollywood area. You've done uh, produced and directed documentaries. Uh, Greg, you uh, write our scriptwriter. Uh, Trish, you work for Walt Disney. What's it like to be under the microscope of yourself producing a documentary about your story? Uh, Greg, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I, it's that's a good question. Uh, I got into writing specifically because I didn't want to be in front of a camera. Uh, I like doing the hands-off <laughs> grunt work behind the scenes. Uh, so all of a sudden, when uh, this documentary came about and, and, and cameras were popping up, uh, it's a real adjustment process. Uh, there are a lot of times where you don't want a camera around, and we're talking about you know some really heavy issues, the, obviously the cancer diagnosis and treatment, but there's conversations that we have to have about surrogacy and you know, the future of our child and all of that. It's, it's tough to have to have them in front of cameras. Um, so 
there were a lot of times where I didn't want them up and I vocalized that and I calmed down and I realized that at the end of the day, uh, we're going to film something that's going to be able to, to share a story that I think will help people. Uh, but coming to terms with that was tough. So Craig, in terms of clearly the mandate of bringing tissues to any screening when this film debuts, what are the big takeaways that you'd like the audiences to learn and what sort of calls to action are you hoping are taken from the viewing audiences? You know, I've been thinking about this question all day. Um, I think the one great takeaway of it all, there's, I think there's a lot of lessons throughout it. Um, but to me, the one great takeaway is, is Trish could have, and Greg, but Trish really in particular, I mean, she could have quit. She could have stopped all of this. Um, I mean, for three years, um, so many, so many um, adverse moments, so many different times. You know, I don't want to give away the whole film, but I mean, this is a true, it's truly an emotional journey. Um, she could have quit on herself. She could have quit on trying to start this family. Um, and and she just kept going. And I think that the great takeaway for this film is that, is to never give up. Um, yeah, well, I think that's it. Well, spoiler alert, you're looking forward to bringing home baby boy Grace and Matthew their Thanksgiving. <laughs> so clearly a very happy ending. A quick note on, on some of the more uncomfortable conversations that happen in our community. Have you ever gotten or have you received any, I won't say hate, but I would say in the sense, how dare you want to bring a child into this world when you're sick? Because we've seen that happen too many times in our community over the years. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I've received, I have a friend who received a lot of hate when she was exploring her an egg retrieval and she's a metastatic survivor as well. Um, I whether or not I didn't experience it or I just turned off to it because it wasn't something that was going to serve me. I did make the mistake once of, of putting something out there on a, one of the private kind of metastatic Facebook groups because I really wanted to get support almost from, from people. And it, I wouldn't say it was all hate. I would say it was pretty mixed. Some people, why would, why would you do that? Um, we're all going to die. And you know, other people saying, I feel exactly like you. It's, it's all I want to do is have a family and I don't know how to do that. Um, nobody really came forward and said, I've done what you're about to do and here's how I did it and how I felt about it and just was able to share their experience. So little moments like that helped, helped me, helped bolster me to continue filming the documentary because when we first started filming the experience, I did not know that I was going to have an egg donor. You know, we hadn't signed with a surrogacy agency yet. I didn't know how I was going to find my surrogate. Um, it was really from the very beginning uh, exploration that we picked up the camera. So um, thankfully, I did not experience any extreme hate. But the first question is always, so why are you not adopting? And it did, I it explained to people just the issues with adoption and cancer survivorship. So it gave a foray to talk about that. And three years into it now, I'm actually kind of tired of apologizing almost for not adopting, uh, even though it wasn't even an option. Even if it was an option, I just, I feel like we shouldn't have to apologize for what we're going to do. You know, we had to make some, a really tough decision and we thought you know, thought through it for years. And, you know, Greg and I had a very honest conversation. I'm sure Greg remembers this conversation very well. But before we started the process, I walked in and I said to him, I want to be abundantly clear that in order to do this, you have to be okay if, God forbid, you are a single father. Like, I just want to make sure you are picturing that and accepting that now, because if that's not the case, if you're not okay with that, then we can't do this. So, um, yeah, so we, thankfully we didn't experience the hate, but I also don't feel like I want to apologize for what we're doing. No, nor, nor should yeah. you at all. Jen Rackman from Circle Surrogacy, can you comment on that? 
I think I completely relate to the the feeling of um, why not pursue adoption. I definitely have people say to me, if there are so many children out there in the world that need good homes, why would you go through so much, so much effort to whether it's emotionally, financially, to do this process? You know, almost like making it as if adoption is easier, which I I can't understand. Um, but definitely pulled at my heartstrings and made me feel like a horrible person for pursuing another family building path. Um, so I think that I think it's hard for people to wrap wrap their head around. I mean, here at Stupid Cancer, um, you... yeah, here at Stupid Cancer, our our larger narrative is the right to parenthood, and that cancer shouldn't take that away from you under any circumstances. It is your civil liberty to choose to be a mom or a dad one day, and the fact that it has to cost you an arm and a leg to go through this crazy process for something that you didn't ask to happen to you is a story worth telling. So the film was the story, the story of us. Craig, where can we learn more about the project? Um, and uh, how can people get involved? I think the majority of all the info is at cyangray.org. So the website is cyangray, C-Y-A-N-G-R-A-Y.org. Why cyan gray? So uh, when we first started this journey, we obviously did not know whether or not we were going to have a boy or a girl or if we were going to end up with a child at all. Um, but if we did, we had already chosen the names. Um, if it was a girl, her name was going to be Cyan Rose. And if it was a boy, Grace and Matthew. So we decided that either way, we were going to end up with both of them because they were going to live on forever in the name of the foundation. So it's, it's really, that was our big hope and they are our big hope. So, uh, that is the, the name of the foundation. So what are your plans? We have about uh, three or four minutes left. What are your plans for distribution or screenings, and how can people get involved in that? Um, the, we've, we've, we've edited uh, close to the first you know, three quarters of the film. Um, for, you know, uh, once, once Grayson is here, uh, we'll go back into the edit, and we hope to have a finished film early in 2017. And we expect to take it out to film festivals. And, uh, you know, all of that information will be on the website. And uh, I think that's and, pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, besides film festivals, we, we would love to screen, you know, at fertility clinics and cancer centers and in conjunction with other uh, nonprofits and organizations that share a similar mission of the right to parent and to support and give resources to cancer survivors and those trying to pursue family building in untraditional ways. So um, we are going to look for other outlets just to reach that audience and to serve that audience. And hopefully um, through the film festival circuit, you know, get distribution, a place like Netflix or Amazon or what have you. So Hopefully it'll be easy to find us in the future, but everything will always be on that website. And little does baby Grace and Matthew know he's basically the Truman Show in 2017. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Little does he know. He'll, he'll, uh, I hope that he'll appreciate it one day when he gets to see how much he was wanted and uh, see this incredible journey to, to bring him here. No, it, it is truly a magnificent story and a very noble project. The film, again, the story of us, Trish Russo, metastatic breast cancer survivor, her husband, Greg, and co-producer, Craig Shapiro, who goes back many, many years to Trish Russo back here in good old Tribeca, where we are recording this very podcast. I'm so proud of what you guys are doing. you got a friend in stupid cancer, and you've got the backing of the young adult cancer movement. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, and I'm going to... And I'm going to go to OMG, so I might meet you there. Oh, fantastic. We will yeah. see you at OMG West. All right. And Jen awesome. Rackman from Circle Sargacy, thank you so much for shedding even more light on this incredibly important topic. Thank you for having me. It was nice to talk to you all. Okay. Thanks, Jen. Bye. All righty. Episode 400 in the bag. And what a fun one it was. I'm going to give us one of these. Just because I can. If we had balloons dropping, they'd be dropping. They are dropping. They are. Oh, my goodness. On the radio, Don't they're dropping. On the radio. <laughs> Very nice. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. 
Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. That's our show, the 400th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Jen Rackman from Circle Surrogacy, Trish Russo, Greg Russo, and Craig Shapiro from the film The Story of Us. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Find us online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the downtown Manhattan. And on behalf of the team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next time for episode 401. Have a great week, folks.